The Defense Department said it was going to start considering climate change, a major part of its national security planning. That was back in January. Now the department is nearly finished with that strategy. Federal News Network Scott Mossioni joins me with the latest. And Scott, let's set the background here. Why is DOD taking climate change into account even more than they had been? Because this is something they have been talking about for a few years now, correct? Yeah, they certainly have. And what this stems from is from an executive order from the White House back in January, on January 27th to be exact. And that executive order really put climate change as a big factor in a lot of government plans. Uh, and, and the Defense Department was one of those. Now, in the past, there have been climate surveys, Arctic strategies, base resiliency studies, all these sorts of things. But there had never been an actual centralized strategy that said, you know, this is how we're going to take climate change into account for all of our future planning. Uh, Climate change, the Defense Department has said, is going to be a huge part of its future threat landscape in terms of bases, base security and resiliency, in terms of how the Arctic is opening up, uh, water resources, extreme weather, uh, pretty much everything that the military uh, has its hands in will be affected by climate change in some way or another. And they've already seen damage from climate or at least extreme weather events in Florida and other locations. So it's not like they don't think anything can happen. Exactly. I mean, uh, one of the most recent studies that came out uh, was on base resiliency, found that more than a thousand DOD bases were in some way uh, vulnerable to climate change. And as you said, we've seen uh, Air Force Base Tendal, which was basically destroyed by Hurricane Michael a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, the, there's other bases that are dealing with rising sea levels and then others that are just in the way of a lot of these wildfires that are happening out in the West. So now the new strategy is starting to come out of the oven, you might say. After six, seven months baking there, what's in it? Well, the, the big thing about this is that it's focused on two different things. One is the resiliency of operations and the resiliency of installations. So as we said, making sure that DOD assets uh, stay uh, the way they are and that the DOD can do what it needs to do to uh, protect the nation and continue its, its operations. The second is reducing environmental harm, uh, which, you know, obviously a lesser concern for the Defense Department, but still one that is important uh, when it comes to saving uh, energy and trying to reduce their their footprint. Uh, so this this study and this this uh, strategy has five lines of effort. Uh, one of them is climate informed decision making, where climate considerations uh, help with the enterprise resource allocations and operational decision-making process. They also want to test, train, and equip a climate-ready workforce. That means that they want all the activities related to developing, fielding, sustaining equipment and services to have some sort of climate uh, you know, idea or climate sensitivity to it. There's another thing about just building a resilient infrastructure when it comes to natural infrastructure or uh, built infrastructure, supply chain resilience and innovation. So DOD wants to be assured that key suppliers and industries can operate while impacted by climate change and, un- and they have uninterrupted access to key supplies and materials. And finally, just enhance adaptation and resilience through collaboration. So that means working with their uh, allies and partners to ensure that they can get what they need and that the they can still work together in the way that they need to keep continue operations. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni, and they've had scattered efforts going on for some time now, for example, trying to find alternative or bio-based fuels that can operate both efficiently and also safely and reliably in jets. They are training certain elements of the Army to operate in cold climates and hot climates, the extremes that they might encounter in 
battle situations or expeditionary situations. Does this strategy bring all of those things together in some sort of cogent umbrella? It really does. And and what's really, I think, the most interesting thing about this and the most impactful is that this will uh, inform all of the main parts of the Defense Department strategy. So the form, the future national defense strategies, future uh, chairmen's, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff's uh, ideas on how they think the operation should go forward on things. All of the main documents the Defense Department will put out for, from the future on will deal with this, at least under the Biden administration. Um, you know, they're also required to have annual reports that they give to the National Security Council uh, so that they can continue to take the, the climate change ideas and threats into the threat landscape. And this is uh, something that, that's going to really touch every facet of the military from training all the way up to the procurement of something like the F-35 or, uh, you know, any whatever the next huge weapon system is. All right. So what's going to be required of DOD? Just reports or are there metrics and energy usage and I don't know, you name it, that the administrations are expected to be able to judge DOD by? Well, we don't know exactly yet because this plan is not out and they're not revealing all of their cards yet. However, it will be out by September 1st. Uh, We do know that the military services, though, are doing their own things to try and reduce operational energy use and regular energy use and uh, to make sure that they're resilient. Uh, For example, the Air Force, about 80 percent of their energy use comes from operations and just all the weapon systems that they have. And they're saying that a lot of the small investments that they're doing this year for really less than $40 million are really helping out with what they're they're doing. For example, angling windshield wipers differently, the little winglets that they have on the end of uh, the airplane wings, uh, modifying those things just to save gas. You know, so this is something that saves money as well as saves, uh, you know, the, the environment. Uh, another thing is that the, the Navy is certainly concerned about rising sea levels, considering they have a lot of coastal bases. So, so, uh, you know, one of the things they're doing is working with the communities that they're in to see what they can do to you know, build different seawalls and then just making sure that there's resilience within cyber and other parts of this. Uh, they're also running things called black exercises where they take bases off grids, um, uh, electrical grids, and see if they can uh, you know, make their independent power source work. And some of these power sources may be from biodiesel fuels or uh, you know, solar panels, all those sorts of things. Uh, finally, the the army is saying that they are going to have their own uh, plan coming out in the next sixty days or so uh, about climate change. It'll be really a detailed plan laying out a multi year effort that covers everything from operating forces to installations. The presumption in the requirement of this reporting and of the strategizing that the military is doing is that the climate change would have an effect on the military itself. As we said, rising sea levels could affect naval ships and so on. Do they also see it as part of the strategic threat with respect to adversaries? Is there some effect climate has on that that they're also thinking about? They certainly do. And, you know, when it comes to equipment, I think one of the the things that they're trying to build in resiliency is, I mean, if you consider that these, maybe a tank has to go through, uh, you know, lots of different types of weather or whatever, what have you, uh, you know, acid rain will deteriorate uh, a tank much faster. Uh, High winds, hurricanes and things like that are, are hurting a lot of uh, weapon systems. Uh, also, we're seeing that the resources around 
the world are changing. So a lot of areas within the Arctic are opening up, making uh, Russia go north to find oil and things like that. Uh, there will also be droughts in places like Africa and, and the M Middle East and within uh, Asia, which will cause a rush for water resources. So there's plenty of different things that will change the way the world uh, acts and definitely the threat and security structure of the world the way it is right now. Well, we can't wait till the Ice Age returns and then we'll see how everybody reacts. Federal News Network, Scott Mossione, thanks so much. Thank you. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only 
my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., 
I gain the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.